Welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network podcast, presented, of course, by Esports Network. I'm your host, Mitch Reams, and today we are talking about game balance in esports. It's a topic very close to the hearts of every esports fan and player. To cover this topic, I'm joined by Josh Rye. He's an esports writer, a tier three Overwatch player, a high level CS player in the past. So he's very experienced in the FPS space and game balance is close to his heart. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining the podcast. We are also joined by Zach Almorabi. He's an esports journalist and a caster. He specializes in FPS and MOBAs. So we're going to be covering the high-level player and a caster, really trying to get an in-depth look at the game balance issue. Zach, how about you, man? I'm doing good as well. Hope to have a really interesting chat today. Yeah, I think it will be. Uh, so game balance in esports, Zach, you're the one who reached out to me with this topic. Why did you want to talk about it? What's the what's the draw? What do you think is is so important about this topic? Well, it's a topic that comes more and more into the spotlight as more and more esports come out and the companies trying to balance them have more and more backlash from their fan bases. Uh, you know, people always complain about their video games. It's how you know they're passionate. But in some areas, it does go a bit too far. And it's done that quite recently with a few popular games like Overwatch and League of Legends. Yeah, the meta really is one of the most important things about how enjoyable an esport is to watch. And there's always going to be pros and cons to a specific meta, but I think the one common thread is that if a meta sticks around for too long, it eventually feels pretty grindy and we want something else to, to change the pace. Do you guys agree with that? Do you think meta should be constantly changing? Or do you like it when there's one that stays for, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months? Yeah, so if we're so I definitely come from a more FPS space. So my views on the topic are definitely gonna be more centered around, you know, FPS genres. But first of all, I'd like to preface this with the fact that like my the the coolest thing about a meta in my perspective is that it really is in a lot of games the thing that ties the player base to the business aspect of a game where like uh, this is like overlooked a lot but a game really is like more like a business in some aspects than it is just a game in the sense that with things like a meta you have to appeal to one side or the other in the sense of if you have an esport you're gonna have the professional players who are playing every single day for 10 hours know every mechanic of the game and more than likely they're not going to mess up any of their mechanics you have to either balance your game so that it's easy and playable and creates like a good fun loving meta for these professionals but or you have to balance it for the people who are only going to play two hours a day they're more casual players and you know they're going to struggle a lot to be able to keep up with players playing 10 hours a day and they're not going to know every mechanic of the game and so in the sense of if there was a meta that was 100 pro dominated like it was a pro uh, created meta, something that was, you know, balanced for professionals. I think that a meta not changing can be a very good thing, like how you saw with uh, goats in Overwatch. But I think it definitely ruins it for the casuals. And I don't think you can sustain a business model for a game in that kind of way right now. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like once you're, once you're deep in a meta as a casual player, you know, you're picking it up two hours every day, you're not trying to get so deep into it and if you like you know two overwatch characters you just really enjoy playing with them and the meta is hey those characters are bad right now 
you're going to get burnt out on the game pretty quickly because you're just not ready to you just want to play as that character that's what you want as a casual player and if they suck the experience isn't going to be fun for you yeah what I, game I, do you think does the best balance between pro and casual so both games are pretty happy counter-strike easily yeah easily counter-strike <laughs> yeah i was gonna For say sure. the exact same thing so that that's crazy that we all had the the same one i mean it's just the cleanest meta i guess it's not the it's not very complex right i think that's the big draw it doesn't have it's, champions it's uh, it's complex in all the right ways and it's simplistic in all the right ways so like it does the perfect match of all of its complexities being under the mechanics right so like you're gonna have your complexities with the way angles work, the way you know your spray patterns in game work, small stuff like that that really brings the game together. But it's not gonna inhibit the spectator sport part of it, right? So like if you if you're just a casual player watching clips of the game, it's a guy shooting another guy with a gun, right? And that's something that appeals to everybody. Uh, Counter Strike just does a great job of pulling in both audiences that way. Yeah, and no, back on the evolving meta topic counter-strike is unique in that the meta doesn't change because the company tunes their game often the meta changes because all these little uh things that you can do to advance the meta players do that and advance it by themselves so you'll see map metas and csgo completely shift just because players discover new strategies new smokes uh new angles new wall bangs even uh like on train you can now wall bang the area into box halls from ct and it's just, it adds a lot of complexities to how you can play it. And as far as like player meta, uh, player driven metas go, the it's not just like the things with like utility, but you can just play pure competition and like pushing each other's gameplay to the highest level changes the meta in those kind of games. Like before Stewie 2K and the whole Cloud9 Boston Major thing, you didn't see very many people flashbanging through smokes, jumping through smokes nearly as much as you see now. Not even just across like the FPL scene or like the pug scene, but really in pro scrims, the pro level and like throughout North America and international scenes, you see these people flashing through smokes and using it as a viable strategy on every single map when it was just a pug strat before limited to a small few amount of NA players. So you can really see like the meta, just the, the very play style of players completely changes just based on players pushing themselves rather than, you know, patches made by a company to forcibly change the meta. That's that's exactly the point I wanted to bring up. It's really interesting that the game that does the least amount of work of all the, the biggest esports, the game with the developers doing the least amount of updates to the meta, we think has the best one. And I, I wonder if that's something that League or Overwatch, maybe they're just different games, but if they took a little more of a hands-off approach to the meta, do you think given some time players would be able to develop their own strategies, but with the constant update cycle, it sort of leaves the meta in the hands of the developers. They want to change something. They introduce a new champion. It's like, all right, that champion can now completely shake up the meta. It feels more artificial versus CS, which doesn't change often, but that allows the players to really find the time for new strategies. If you left Overwatch alone for, you know, when was the last CS update? It was over a year, right? Yeah, so, it was a while ago. The last major yep. CS update was the one that changed the economy, and it actually yeah. did a lot for how you play Terrorside. Right, and that really mattered, but it gave people enough time. I wonder if you could leave League of Legends or Overwatch just alone for over a year, 
and then people might develop like the meta might evolve naturally but given the update cycle it doesn't ever have room to really evolve that naturally so i will say something about that just purely because of the time frame that you used so we had a uh, goats meta which was triple tank triple uh, support for a year and a half on goats in overwatch and a year and a half huh yeah it okay. was around a year and a half some somewhere somewhere around there but here the thing with that right is that before we had metas that would last from a range of like two months to around six or eight months, similar to like dive. But this was the first meta that which really did last a year or more. And it was completely dominant. You could, people figured out well, when goats first started, it was just merely used on payload maps a couple of times. And it was, it was, um, you would just run your team straight into the other team and hope to brawl it out. Right. But as people started playing it more and more and people realized they're not patching the game, this is, going to be the comp because every patch they did on it failed and i'll get into that in a second but um this the meta really evolved from everybody was just slamming their teams into one another and only using on payload maps to everybody used goats on every map and people figured out all of its innate strengths and weaknesses they figured out that the team that goes in first can be easily kited by the second team and the second team you know the one that plays passively can force out all the cooldowns from the aggressing team and win the fight that way by coming back in afterwards with their cooldowns. And it was a complete 180 from the way the comp was being played originally. As we got to the later stages of GOATS, towards the end of Owl, or towards the end of GOATS' stint in Owl, and the 2-2-2 lock, people were to the point where every single cooldown, even in Tier 3 scrims, every single cooldown on both teams was being called. Because people would push off of even the simplest, smallest, and this is something that was really lost in the spectator aspect of Owl. Like, you can't see this if you're a spectator watching Goats unless you've played Goats. But every single cooldown was called, and every small, minute advantage was pushed on. And that's an example of how, if a meta stays in place, the highest level, people will evolve a meta by themselves. Even in a game like Overwatch. It's not something limited to Counter-Strike. It's more about, like, the philosophy of the way your players see the game. People will evolve and make something efficient if it's something they have to be use, you know, for a long period of time. So yeah, you can definitely see that in Overwatch, and I'm sure League has plenty of examples as well. The issue it with League of Legends, does. and one of the biggest things that pro players have complained about forever, is that it's so hard for them to get used to the patch cycles. With the game being patched every two weeks, there's so many new strategies, new, new champions, new item builds, even new like lane mechanics sometimes that the, that the players have to learn that it takes away from a lot of the innovation they can do. We see a lot of the times in uh, mid-seasons, the meta kind of stagnates in a way where if Riot don't do a big sweeping change, players have to keep just doing baseline adjustments to their gameplay, and we don't see that innovation. The last time we've really seen a major sweeping change to the landscape of League, it was when they changed it so marksmen were all terrible, and you had to start playing mages in the bot lane. And a lot of AD carry players weren't able to keep up with that because they were only playing AD carries for years and years. People like Reckless, famous AD carries, were forced to play Janna ADC, and then he even benched himself because he didn't want to do it anymore. So if League of Legends took a break like that to their balancing, it definitely allowed for a lot more stability that could lead to more, uh, what's the word, in innovation in their gameplay. But it's just hard to do when you have a cast that's that big. And a ton of items you have to balance around. People are always wanting something new, something to be uh, different, to change. And that's where the disconnect between what the pro players want and what the audience and casual players want really shows its head. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. At, at this point, it'd be so interesting to see what would happen with League if you just... Because like you said, you have so many characters and items that if you just left it alone for a while, I you you know that there's strategies that people are missing out on just because of the wide array of options. Like there's just got to be stuff out there that nobody's ever stumbled upon that would be a successful counter to, to something else. It's just yeah, too many also, options. There's also the argument of like that maybe people aren't trying or experimenting. Definitely in Overwatch this happens, but like people aren't trying or experimenting or wanting to move away from the normal meta comps because there's they know that an update that's going to break the comp the the meta or shift up the game in general is coming right around the corner. And so they they might as well practice the meta comp to beat the tournaments they're in right now than to worry about, you know, changing the meta or finding what could really like, you know, come out dominant or a new dominant strategy within the current patch that they're in. It's like there's no incentive to try anything out of the ordinary once a meta like you know starts to be established just because of these constant update cycles. That's exactly it. And if you find that counter, if you do stumble upon it, well, that counter is only so good as the current meta lasts. So yeah. you've spent all that time developing a great counter. You get to do it one time. You pull it out in that tournament. And then by the next time, either the meta's changed or everybody else now has that counter so a great example of that is the is the hunters i just gotta shout them out because the hunters the shendo hunters yeah and the, uh, yeah shout them out what did what did the hunters do hunters who are familiar. the the hunters ran um they ran quad dps uh they ran so in goats meta which is triple tank triple dp or triple tank triple support they would run a ball and uh so hammond and four different dps and one mercy to heal them right and the idea of this comp was to split the tanks up with the ball you know booping them around cc'ing them and then collapsing on a split target with their four dps and bursting them down instantly and so this is completely like as much of an opposite as you can get from the meta at the time and they forced it they only played that and they signed every player signed to their roster was really good at their individual DPS heroes, and they didn't play goats once, and they just played quad DPS in owl, in owl. So like, this is a million dollar sponsored team, all with paid contracts, playing twelve hours a day, and they would not conform to the meta. They would only play quad DPS, and that was just a that. I mean, it's a they're just a great example of a team that took a took a really 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 big gamble because uh, obviously they didn't fare too well with it. They. I think they, but I think they went. They were about five hundred, right? I think they were like thirteen yeah. and fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like in the middle, I think, somewhere. But yeah, I just I was just looking at their roster for uh, the Overwatch World Cup podcast I published yesterday because they have basically entire team China is the hunters. Um, mm-hmm. and then so speaking of DPS, didn't we just see the Houston Outlaws? Their their team is now like four dps or five dps players i swear yeah. i saw that yeah yeah yeah. they signed blase um who's actually somebody i know from tf2 but they signed blase they signed i think it was um oh shoot i'm forgetting but there, there's there's they signed quite a few dps players i don't know why they're stocking up with five dps but yeah i just follow a lot of overwatch things and i just saw like a whole bunch of people like well we'll see how five dps works for houston outlaws i guess that's a strategy now so yeah. that'll be hey <laughs> at least it'll make them exciting to watch as they go to homestead weekends like 
their games will be really unique and fast paced. So that's something. That's I true. Guess. Yeah. <laughs> Outlaw uh, game are always fast paced. They lose pretty quickly. <laughs> the other game I want to talk about before we move on from casuals versus pros is Fortnite. And whether or not you think Fortnite is an esport, I that's a whole other question. But they put down the money for the esports scene, but they never prioritized the professional players. They always, always, always chose the casual side. And we saw that all throughout this summer. I mean, they're they're appealing to an audience that is like ages eight to to 13. And they did that with the giant mech thing they introduced all summer. I can't oh the brute. That was what it was called. But the the way they've like put in items right before major tournaments. Last winter they put in the Infinity Blade, which is a one of a kind item that made it was like the Halo sword on steroids in a game that prioritized building and like smart engagements and rewarded getting kills. And there was literally one of them for all 100 players. They did that the morning of Winter Royale, which had like a million dollar prize pool. And so that was that's how Epic Games has balanced Fortnite. And it's the best example of a developer being like, we don't really care about the pro players. We're just going to put all this money for you guys. And then you're going to have to deal with whatever meta changes we get you give you because we're paying you millions of dollars. You're not happy? You can play something else, but they don't have millions of dollars of prize pools. So I just wanted to mention that as we talk about balancing for casuals and pros. Yeah, the thing about Fortnite is they've kept doing that over and over. I, I know, I've watched very little Fortnite esports. And like I said, the, one of the tournaments I watched was the Infinity Blade tournament. I just watched people charge at them with a sword. And it... it takes away from the high skill gameplay that the pros really don't like another example is the rollers that just give people instant rotations that got added the balls that people roll around in i forget their exact name uh, they were, it, it's the baller that the was baller. the name of it yeah yeah and when they add these things it it's definitely more suited towards a casual player base obviously fortnite has probably one of the biggest casual player bases if not the biggest in all video games at the moment it's got to be the biggest. Yeah, it's, they're definitely the biggest. Yeah. yeah, and their players don't care about the thing about like the other biggest games, League or CS. Those players still care about the competitive side. Like they're queuing it up, and they might be low ranked, but they're generally playing comp. Fortnite has this entire population of players that are literally just screwing around, shooting themselves out of cannons, like getting in hamster balls flying around and playing, stream sniping random, like just entering games to try and stream snipe people. That is the Fortnite player base. And it's way different from any other esports player base. In my opinion, I think that Fortnite is literally, I know that the company does get a lot of flack, especially from its own player base, but I think that the company itself is the highest performing business in gaming right now. Like I think they've done it right on every single front from the sense of, from just their customer acquisition to just the way that the players themselves have to play the game, the way the game looks, its soundscape, how it feels. I just think they did that all perfectly. Like the audience they attracted was like the Minecraft era type age. The, 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 the you, you're like 11 to like 15 year olds. They're going to create your like culture. If you can kind of get what that means. Like they're going to be like the lifeblood of your game. And if you can get that age group attracted, they're going to create a big culture with a lot of memes and a lot of publicity for you that you can really start like a cult following over. Similar to Minecraft, the same thing happened with Fortnite. And yeah. their marketing team was just phenomenal for that, I think. 
because like you said, because of viewership statistics and like the amount of casual players, pros literally are strong armed into playing anything. Yeah, they don't they don't even have a choice. Like the the Twitch viewership, the the prize pools, everybody who's in Fortnite or enjoyed it for a while is like, my business is now Fortnite. I can go play another game, but my viewers are gonna drop by like if you're one of those big guys, it's gonna drop by 10k. Yeah, if everyone wants to be Tfue and Ninja, right? Like just you just need a year of this and then you can you're set for life. You have you know a million dollars for that year. There's so many of them. I mean, you look at Twitch charts and you're still going to see 10 Fortnite streamers in the top like 30 channels on Twitch. Mm-hmm. It is the game. And now with Fortnite 2, I haven't actually played the game since they released a new season. I've heard it's been much better, but I can't speak on that. I wrote for Fortnite Intel for nine months. I did like 400 articles on Fortnite. And by the end of it, my mind was numb <laughs> with that game. Because I, I like... I like esports. I like the competitive side. And so my articles were always like, what the hell is Epic doing? Like, look at all these people in ballers. This is a this is just a total shit show. And the audience was like, well, I like the ballers. I'm like, that's great. But this is a shit show. We can all agree on that fact. I um, do have to ask, so you probably know, like, is the, you know, the creative mode? Is that uh, competitive in any way? Like the uh, ones where players just still at each other? did bring it into the World Cup in a really unique way. They did like creative trials, which have you ever seen the death runs like phase scissors did death runs, which were um, they're like the obstacle courses that CS used to have where you like had to hop jump and like yeah, yeah, yeah. really precise movements. And it was really good. And they did like these teams of people and it was like a relay race basically mm-hmm. through it. And they had that one. They had another one where you had to like hide. You basically were like a piece of trash. Which is like a junkyard, and you're like a rusted out car, oh, so and you prop, had to like, like sounds like prop hunt, yeah, 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 yeah. prop hunt, exactly. That, and that's what that one was. And then there was one other one, which was like sort of like a like a Halo style protect your base, uh, protect your base, attack others, like what, what, like domination, but except everybody has a home base and stuff. So, so they sort of like competitiveized the that side of it. I think that creative mode, like we talk about Fortnite's marketing team absolutely insane that creative mode was the smartest thing they could have ever done because mm-hmm. they just became minecraft yeah. like they <laughs> they were like okay you guys want to create stuff you're super young you have all the time in the world you want to create insane worlds have at it that was the smartest thing they could have done that and being able to hit a wide range and somehow being popular in colleges and being popular for fourth graders i don't think any game has ever hit such a wide range of people where it's mature enough that college age kids are like, yeah, this is this is fun. I play this with my friends on a Wednesday night. And then fourth graders are doing are like flossing and doing dances. Yes, the like, dances. What an amazing design choice, right? Just like it, it, that dance is so synonymous with culture, just in general. Like forget gaming. Dances are just such a big part of culture. And they managed to like, you know, invade that space and get like a bunch of kids to do Fortnite dance battles in their middle school I have like, a, yeah, I have a good friend who's a teacher in a middle school now, and she on her first day she like did like a, a warm up. It's like, what do you like to do in your free time? And multiple kids said, I like to do Fortnite dances, <laughs> <laughs> like in their free time. Like, not even playing Fortnite. They said, I like to do Fortnite dances, <laughs> and that's just props to you, Epic Games, because you talk about the business. Yes, if Fortnite gets some critiques from the esports community, but Epic Games gets none from a business perspective. They knocked it out of the park 100%. The World Cup was a spectacular event. It really was. It was, it was well put together. The meta was 
actually decent at the time. They sort of like figured it out. They know what they're doing. Oh yeah. It might not always be the best balance for pro players, but they know what the cost risk benefit is. And so they're like, okay, we're going to make it a, a pro meta for now, but it's still summer. Kids are out of school. The brutes are coming back. Deal with it. But speaking from a competitive, like, you know, a competitive player's POV, like that, it really is bad for the pros. Like they, I I do know a lot of people who were in the top 200 who stopped playing and they just don't like the game. They don't like the way they feel treated, if that makes sense. Like, and and it makes it hard to climb. It makes it really hard hard to keep like the motivation to climb to the top. Yeah. And they've ignored it. They've ignored and ignored and ignored uh, the, the pro players complaints. And so that's. I've always said they need two different loot pools. That's their best solution is just, hey, here's a ranked mode. The ranked mode doesn't have these broken items. Here's a casual mode. They already have different loot pools for LTMs and stuff. Why should they not just have a competitive side and a casual side with two different loot pools? I really i have never heard a great answer for why they don't do that. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because uh, an esport that I actually follow a lot and it's pretty niche is PUBG esports. And they do have the two separate loot tables things where pro play has a, a super loot mode where basically wherever you drop, your your team is pretty much guaranteed to get full loot. Uh, armor, guns, nades, everything they need. Cars even. There's guaranteed car spawns. And because of that, PUBG esports turns into more of a thinking game than a shooting game. It's more about prioritizing your rotations over just taking firefights. Obviously, the better aimers are going to have advantage from those firefights, but watching PUBG Esports is so much just about the positioning battle, and a lot of the times the team that has the best positioning battle with the circles is going to end up winning. So I think that's a really interesting example for Battle Royale Esports done right. I'm not super familiar with PUBG Esports. Are the circles still random, or on the ranked mode, do they know where the circles are going to be? They're pseudo-random, where the first one is random, but after that, where they go to is very predictable. There's a lot of uh, rules that has to follow. For instance, circles don't end frequently over cities. Uh, they cannot end... Uh, later circles cannot have any water in them, You know, so there's more playable area. So it's still pseudo-random, but there's ways that you can play around it. And because the maps are staple, you know, because the Battle Royale, teams know what rotations they can take, what angles they can fight at. Uh, like we were a point earlier where every single cooldown was tracked in GOATS, every single position is tracked in PUBG Esports. That's I really like that. I think that's a great way of doing it. I'm really for anything that introduces strategy and complex decision-making in real time. That's like my favorite aspect of esports. So anything that has, hey, they're random, but also if you're really good and you've played a lot, you know it's probably going to move to here. This seems like a likely last landing spot, and you can formulate your strategy based on that. I'm I'm a huge fan of that. I need to check out more PUBG esports. The World Championships coming up uh, in November. You should watch it. Perfect. What uh? Do you know what days? Probably. Uh, don't remember off the top of my head. Later uh, or mid? I'm just. I think mid to late. Okay. I'll have to check that up. I've got worlds on my on my like radar for that middle November slot, but yeah, I'll definitely uh, after that I'll check it out. If you guys want to come back on and talk about PUBG esports, I'd be down for that. Maybe I'd be down. This is a lot of fun, honestly. <laughs> yeah, podcasting is great. I love just having a nice conversation uh, about you know you can talk about a lot of different things, and it's it's fun to to do this. It's a good medium. 
Uh, but let's let's move on. We're about 30 minutes in and we have some other topics we want to hit. So I like this one. You put this, I'm not sure which one of you two put this point down, but design philosophy, prioritizing individual skill or team play. What should developers be aiming to hit with their gameplay? To me, I think it depends on the game. Personally, uh, for, for things like League and Overwatch, I really like to see a lot of team play. Uh, for games like CS, I'm actually a huge fan of like things that allow individual skill. But that's just me personally. I'd love to hear uh, from your guys' thoughts on that as players and fans of different esports. Okay, well, again, I think CS, again, does it like perfectly here. Just the pure 50-50 balance of you yeah. knowing your positioning, you have a mental map of your team and the enemy team, making your plays based on that. That's already the team play. That's already your game sense. And then the individual skill in your aim how you're going to clutch out those rounds. It's just so perfect in CS. And it, it shines through to the spectators as well. Like Spectators can look at the how the team is pushing, the executes on the site, four Molotovs and a smoke going off at once. Like It just looks coordinated, you know? And the individual skill obviously shines through when you get those first-person cams. But I think every other game has arguably the, a much harder time dealing with it. Just because of the more complexities you add to a game in their mechanics, like in Overwatch, if you're going to do the whole class-based shooter, cooldown-based uh, movement and DM, then you're going to have a lot more issues, especially with like, and, and with a lot of these games, a big problem comes in for this issue when you have a rank ladder, because say you have a game like, uh, I think League is pretty notorious for this, for being super built around team play. And a lot of your cooldowns are going to be used for your team or with in tandem with your team. You're going to struggle a lot when you're in a game with four other random players on your team. And that's going to make your ranked experience horrible because you're going to be inclined to look at your teammates' mistakes rather than your own mistakes. And you see that in Overwatch. You see that in presumably League. Oh, and you see that in League. I, I can't play League anymore. <laughs> I'm not good enough. And you, you get forced into roll locks. You get forced into playing your different like things that you don't want to play and then you just get it's so frustrating because the whole thing is a web like you're so focused on if if one part of it breaks or one and then you lose the game just straight away like <laughs> it's so frustrating to do that and that's one of the main issues with like with overwatch as well i mean overwatch i think allows at the lower levels you don't really need a perfect team comp you don't you could just sort of get in there, get a couple kills, and that'll be a positive enough thing to probably win you the game if you do that consistently. League feels really reliant on everything your teammates are doing. I can't speak to the League aspect of it, but from an Overwatch perspective, you know, having been top 500 on multiple accounts, it is definitely a case of if you're good enough, you can get straight to GM just by being good enough. I mean, there are people who don't know very, like it doesn't like comps and stuff don't necessarily matter until players, you know, have the knowledge to be able to execute them at the right level. And you're not going to start seeing that until 4k 4.1 K. So you really can just be like, you, you can let your individual skin, skill shine through a little bit more in overwatch. I'd feel than than uh league of legends for sure. But the thing with this concept is that, if a game doesn't make individual skills shine through, you create this environment where people aren't having fun. You know, it's just like real life where people want to have, they want to feel like they have an impact on their fate, I guess. They want to feel like the decisions, the decisions that they're making are having a direct impact. They're changing the course of what's coming out. And games like Overwatch and games like League really 
the the team play really takes that away from them in the in rank ladders. Like in Overwatch, especially in double shield meta right now, you you don't feel like a lot of your decisions are directly changing the game. Like you don't feel like you popped off, you took that space for your enemy you, for your team, you entry fragged on that site. Like you never get any of those feelings because anything that changes in the game is based around like four different cooldowns happening at once from your team. So I think I think when a company chooses to prioritize team play over individual skill, they're really going all in on the esports aspect because the player experience is more or less going to be horrible. I think nine times out of ten. And such Definitely. a good example of the player experience being terrible when they try to focus on the competitive aspect is the recent league release of Yumi. If anyone who follows League of Legends knows about Yumi, that champion garbage on ladder right now 40 percent win rate which is abysmally low on release it was abysmally low until people figured out that yumi was actually the best character in the game you have a character that can go untargetable on their ad carry so you can't pick them off they do tons of damage can heal people and speed them up and then they have this low cooldown high utility ultimate and it's so hard to kill this character you just can't do it in any form of competitive play yumi was 100% perma banned for the end of all the regular season splits in every region no matter what they tried nerfing yumi over and over it's now world. Yumi still has 50% presence. Teams pick her with Garen bot lane just so she can get gold and items and poke. And this character who can't really do anything in solo queue or ladder play because it requires a teammate to latch onto and to play around your cooldowns, this champion just wreaks havoc in competitive play and is completely unworkable. There are tons of league champions who have been like this over the years. Kalista, Azir, Ryze, you know, Ryze had numerous reworks over and over it's just it's so hard to hit that balance if you're trying to go for competitive play yeah when you look at a competitive game's balance it really there's always going to be those things that are so hard to use that their win rate is going to be abysmally low for casual players but they're always going to be picked because people watch the esports scene and they're like well if that character is always being picked then we should be picking them, obviously, and then they, you get into it, and it's just such a bad team play. But I actually really like those characters. I think it's good to have a character that has such a high skill ceiling that it's only broken in competitive play. And for casual players, it doesn't really work. I think I think it's actually kind of nice to have a different meta down in the lower ranks than you actually see at the pro play. To me, that says a it's really complex. Like there's a, there's a lot of different options for people to do you don't feel forced into like people sort of felt a little forced into goats in overwatch but okay, if but you have there's the thing about that there's the thing about that right like um the uh, sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but like the the lower levels the lower elos you're never gonna see like okay until you get this is gonna be an unpopular opinion probably to anyone watching this who follows overwatch but if you're under 4k right or if you're under top 500 honestly because I know from playing against tier three teams, most a lot of tier three teams, like low to mid level tier three teams, and tier a tier three team is like you know something under contenders. It's going to be a bunch. Everybody on a tier three team is basically top five hundred or peak four point four k. But in these tier three streams, fifty percent of my scrims, people didn't know how to play goats. So you're not going to be able to really make the argument that people underneath 4k are going to be able to play goats or at least to a degree that's going to stop you from playing your heroes 
if that makes sense. The reason why you couldn't play DPS into GOATs is because of how a coordinated team could peel from every side and stay as a complete death ball. You're not going to get that in ranked in top 500 games. Very, very, very slight chances of getting like enough pro players to be able to coordinate a pub team in top 500 games. You're never going to get that in a gold game. So like in lower elos, you would see people running Arissa Hog, you'd see people running like Ryan Zarya with just two DPS, like two 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 comps and all that kind of stuff. And they just were they would claim that they weren't, you know, they were just not playing meta. But in reality, any comp would work fine at that elo. Just purely because the they don't have the skill to be able to execute it at the highest level. Like they can't execute goats. Yeah, and it's similar in League of Legends, where every season of the 200 challenger players, 50 of them are one tricks. People who play champions that either aren't necessarily meta, or they can only play one champion, even if it, there's bad matchups, or they don't have a uh, pick priority to get good matchups. It, these things happen where it's same in League, like you say in Overwatch, where the highest level of gameplay where the pros play is so different from every other level. So much so that even pro players. In NA, like there's a joke where if you're if you're challenger, you call master players bad. If you're master, you call diamond players bad. Top uh, level pro players call lower level pro player pro players, excuse me, bad. It's just you can get away with so many things if people aren't playing completely optimally. And even in NA at the highest level, we just saw at Worlds, they weren't able to really do anything at the at, against the Asian teams and the European teams. It's just. If you can't play at the highest level, you can really do a lot to get away with whatever you want to play. And I'm sure it's like this in League too, but it's like the players at that low elo, they can't even tell what the difference between them and the players above them are. Obviously, that's the reason why they, they're they struggling to improve from the level they're at to the next level. But because they can't even see what the differences are in their gameplay compared to like maybe somebody a step above them or two ranks above them, they can't tell why, what they can exploit in, in these comps to be able to like you know pull out their one tricks to be able to play their heroes and you know exploit their teams because they just can't tell what they need to improve on. Yeah, it's really like Rocket that. League, we call that plat champ. I'm sure that's the same as League. Uh, but champ. I was a bro yeah, in Rocket League. Yeah, so. grand, grand champ. Platinum saying that they're grand champ. Yeah, Diamonds in League saying they could be challenger. Uh, okay, I see, I see. That's the, that's the rank right there where you figure out the game a little bit. You know, you're, you're starting to get a you little confident. You think you know what you're doing. Yeah, you're like, hey, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I'm hitting some stuff. Like, I'm good at this. But then my teammates. My teammates, <laughs> teammates are... So bad, but I'm I'm pretty good. Like I think <laughs> I can see myself being up there, but my teammates, oh, I need it's so bad. And it, it gets Rocket League's actually a really interesting game to talk about the meta because it's a game that has literally zero balance updates. Mm-hmm. It's never happened in, in in four years. They've never the game that it released then is just about like some really minor tweaks to fix bu- fix bugs and stuff, but the the main car that 80% of pros use is the Octane, which is literally the stock car you get at the beginning. And the other one they use is the Breakout, which is also a stock car you get at the beginning. And all that the entire game has just been elevated year over year purely on people increasing and pushing up the skill ceiling because they find insane things they can do coming off the ceiling, flip resets off the ball. 
it's a really interesting game in that sense where everything else has seen, you know, even CS has had major updates in the time that Rocket League has been out and Rocket League is, you know, the, the game play has changed a ton, but only because people have gotten better and the arena has become more accessible. It's a, it's a really interesting case study as an esport. I can't think of any other esport like it. Uh, yeah. I'd say like CSGO and Rocket League have so many similarities just in the sense of like, um, the the simplicity is what attracts people, honestly. Like or like it it makes the game so balanced. Just because I mean, for rock in Rocket League's sake, obviously there's the big looming thing of it's based on soccer, you know, an age old East or age old real sport being played by millions for, throughout history. But it, it's just soccer itself is a simple game, and Rocket League just takes that and adds the mechanics of these cars to create the complexity, which is the same thing CS does, right? Where it's just basic gunplay of a tactical shooter. With the mechanics, the in-depth mechanics really being in like your utility usage and your your sprays and how you control your guns. Yeah, and Rocket League is the same way, where a lot of the complexity comes from little small things, you know, boost management, proper air control, tilting your car one degree more can cause the entire play to be different. And uh, with that, you said that there's been no major updates to Rocket League for four years. There was one. Uh, all the cars initially, when they released a new one, they gave them independent hitboxes. But right. somewhat recently, when a couple of years ago, they standardized them to six standard hitboxes, and it made a couple people, a couple pros, really upset because they really liked using specific cars. Um, most notably, Cuxier, who invented the Cuxier pinch move, where you would smash your car against the side and pinch the ball super fast to the other side. Uh, his favorite car, the Batmobile, was actually standardized to be the breakout hitbox, I believe. No, it, it was given a unique hitbox later on because people complained about it. But that's the kind of thing where uh, Psionics kind of removed that complexity and the pro players really didn't like it because it took out a lot of the individual little things that players would do to change up their game. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I actually forgot about that one. The The Batmobile was the one like DLC car, non-stock car that saw some pro play, thanks to Cuxer. Even then, though, most people were still in the Octane. It wasn't like he figured out the Batmobile and then everybody was switching to it. I really think Rocket League did that because they wanted cars to be more cosmetic than meta-changing more than anything. And like you see that with, they have six unique hitboxes and one of them's the Scarab. And it's like, (laughs) they clearly are like, we don't care what this is going to be we just want you know people are moving it enough and it'll be interesting to see if in time they start to introduce some more hitboxes maybe when epic games takes over uh more of the the balance adjustments i know they said they weren't going to but now that psionics is owned by epic you have fortnite's model which we talked about earlier which is like an update every week or two basically like a new item or a new change every week or two and then you have rocket league which has that one major update in four years so it's just like very conflicting game balance. Uh, I think I, I'd like to say, uh, like on top of this, let, 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 let's take this a step further and let's say that because of the do- like, okay, as it goes with businesses, right? If Fortnite's model is working and it's working phenomenally, or Epic's model, I guess, is working phenomenally for its games, give it a couple decades and what are we going to see? Are we going to see every company harboring the same philosophy where we're appealing completely to the casuals and never to the pro scene because what that because that's a very real possibility and you saw it with the phasing out of games like unreal tournament quake which are also fantastic perfectly balanced games that were phased out because of this appealing towards a more casual audience because if this keeps going if this trend keeps going 
we're not going to have, you're not going to see games like Overwatch or games like League popping up. You're going to see really casual based games that are but the thing is, League is also very successful. So just because Epic has been very successful with Fortnite, you could also point to Riot Games model. And that's also a very successful model. So I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a requirement. Yes, Fortnite has been very successful, but League on. also has the the consistency you look for. Fortnite's done this for two years. League is now the most popular esport in the world for the last four or five. That's really impressive. If you're building a long-term business, I'd be really interested in doing what League is doing, what Riot Games is doing. A lot of that League success uh, internationally can be attributed to one, yes, they do have a very successful esports scene, but they also managed to break the pop culture barrier before Fortnite did. They had they have such an, uh, a reach out into pop culture with things like uh, KDA, that K-pop band. Uh, so many people know about League of Legends. If you go onto a college campus and ask people about League of Legends, most people will know. There's tons of collegiate scenes right now breaking out. Uh, Korea, it's the most popular game in Korean PC bongs. It's like, probably like 50%. 50% of all games played in uh, PC bongs are League of Legends. So they really just have a massive... Uh, public outreach that Fortnite has similarly. It's just they acquired it before and in a bit of a different way, where instead of directly appealing to a casual audience, they just put out as much content as they could. For years and years, League of Legends put out like two different champions a month. That was like, some crazy number. That was 140. Uh, if you go by, the, like, this is their 10-year anniversary, they've put out an average of 14 champions a year. And granted, it has slowed down a lot, but they've reached so many different demographics with all their champion releases, all their media releases. They have a rock band, they have a K-pop band, they have tons of animations that everyone loves to watch. It's just such a cultural phenomenon that Riot Games was able to capture. And that's why when they did their whole announcement for four new games, it's so exciting for everyone because imagine League of Legends model with all of these new games. And Riot, they, they might have something here. Oh, I'm so excited. And actually, when, when we're, you were talking about, uh, Josh, when you were talking about uh, the tactical shooter aspect, I was like, I was dying to ask you about the Riot Games tactical shooter. I'm so hyped for Project A, honestly. Like, I, I'm an Overwatch player, but I really want to jump ship off the game just because of the way that the, the devs treat the game. Like, it's it's very, very hard to be a, to justify being a player at this point. And when, Project when an Overwatch A... Overwatch CS player, it's like they made Project A for you. Exactly, like, yeah. Like. It looks so good. It looks so good. And uh, I don't know if you saw the, the what they were saying about Peeker's advantage, but that that little bit is what um, has given me like super high hopes for the games. The fact that they addressed what Peeker's advantage was and how they were working to counter it in the initial pitch or like or the initial uh, advertising for the game was just mind blowing to me. Yeah, they had a five minute video and they were like, "This is something we're going to prioritize." I was yeah. watching a Summit react to it, and he literally started clapping. He was like, "Really?" And he like yeah. he like clapped for it i was like when you get summit to react like that you know you're doing something right that's yeah, a good a CS player too like he, he played professional cs so he definitely knows what he's talking about in that regard out of out of any of the streamers you could get a reaction from so yeah i'm yeah. really hyped for project day i think i might do like some comprehensive i already have something scheduled with the two other guys to talk about these new titles but honestly i kind of just want to do like a two-hour episode with <laughs> A bunch of thoughts from because both the guys I have are both from the FGC. So I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Project L. So maybe we'll do like if you guys want to come back on and do Project A and we could spend 30 minutes on Project A. Oh, we'd be then I'll go to the FGC guys. I'd and talk be about totally Project. done. Yeah, that'd be yeah. A cool. I'm just like brainstorming a podcast idea in the middle of a different podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
multitasking. Look forward to to our listeners. That's uh, that's coming out in the future. Uh, all right, but I do want to move on because we're at fifty minutes and we have a couple other topics. I think good bad examples of game balance is something that we should definitely touch on. For you guys, is for all the different games, what was one of your favorite metas that you ever remember playing in or watching? What was one of the absolute best metas in any game? Overwatch season three. Like best meta in like the most enjoyable to play as a player or like. It could um, be either one. Most enjoyable as a viewer for the esports scene. Most enjoyable to play in as a high level player. Uh, Zach, most enjoyable to cast for some of your work in casting. I don't know what it, what I just love to hear which which one stands out when you hear most enjoyable meta. Zach, I'm gonna let you go first because I need to think about this for a second. Think? All right. Uh, when I I've been watching League of Legends for five six years now, and the most fun I had was that World Championship. I think it was 2016 where Misfits took SKT. No, it was the Rocks versus uh, SKT Worlds, that one. And I forget exactly which season it was, either 2015 or 2016. But uh, for some context coming in, there was one absolutely insane support in the game. It was Zyra. And she was this high-damage, squishy support that dominated lane and forced early fights, forced early tower takes, and forced tons of lane pressure. And she completely dominated the meta, where if you got Zyra and picked another lane dominated carry, you'd have bot tower by 10 minutes. And it made games really fast and exciting, because uh, other teams, you had to do something about Zyra. You had to send jungle pressure, you had to get TPs early, and if you didn't stop Zyra, she would snowball the game. The Rocks SKT semifinal was groundbreaking in the fact that Rocks pulled out this pick that no one had seen all tournament and that no one ever thought could happen. They picked Misfortune in AD carry in the support role as a specific Zyra counterpick. And the reason was because of a game mechanic where her passive double tap would one-shot Zyra plants because it counted as two autos. That in combination with maxing her E, the AoE make it rain ability, gave her lane priority to match Zyra. So now you had this meta where two bot lanes were going at each other with tons of priority. Everyone was trying to be super aggressive. Everyone was trying to push their lanes in Rome to impact this lane. And that semifinal, uh, SKT versus Rocks, was probably the best semifinal in League of Legends history. Probably the best best of five of all time. It was so fun to watch because everyone's trying to push the envelope of the pace of the game. You have to take over the game before the enemy team does. And it's so much more exciting than the 50-minute farm fest games that happen when meta's slower, damage is lower, and tanks were prevailing. That's that I don't completely hate tanks as a concept. I think that they're necessary to counter bruisers going wild, things like Fiora, if you can actually get a tank to group and counter the split push. But fast metas where teams want to push the envelope are the most exciting. That's really interesting how I, I love just the pure balls to keep uh, that pick, which obviously they would have had plenty of time to break out that choice throughout Worlds. They had probably high intensity games. They had to beat a best of five against another good team to get to the semifinals. And yet they kept it under wraps just to break it out against SKT. I just respect that pure. That's just that takes a lot of confidence that, hey, we're going to beat these people. But we have this up our sleeve when we finally get to Faker. They went down 0-2. They lost the first two games in the best of five before they decided, you know what? Now's the time. We got to do it. Oh, so it was more out of necessity than it was like, hey, we're going to pull this out. It was like, oh, yeah, they, they wanted to we keep need it to pull this the out. finals if they could. Interesting. Interesting. Love that. All right, Josh, you got something for me? 
All right. I honestly, I'm, I'm going to have to go with, and I want to preface this with saying that Goats was terrible for the game as a viewer esport. I completely acknowledge that. But that was my favorite meta to play, especially towards the end of Goats meta, right? And the reason for that is that there were two comps that were predominant or super dominant, which was Goats, obviously, and the four DPS that we talked about before. And this, so the, the, the reason this was great for me is because, number one, from a competitive player's POV, when there's one meta for a game, it makes a game so, 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 so much less stressful because you don't have to worry about learning 40 different heroes. You need to learn two or three. And you don't need to worry about learning how 40 different comps work on 14 different maps. You need to worry about how GOATS works against other comps on GOATS maps. And that's it. And so that was great because I didn't have to learn very much, but I also got to play Widowmaker, which would let like individual skills shine through in the four DPS comp. But I would also get to play uh, Zarya and do like a really teamwork vocal role for my team, like vocal leadership leadership type role for my team during the uh, GOATS comps, which gave me a healthy balance of, you know, that individual skill and team play. GOATS was so intricate like i can't stress this enough it was so lost on so many spectators and i i think that's part of the reason why i think that owl should have done like an in- infographic or something like dedicated a segment towards explaining goats i don't know why t- like like they don't do that for spectator type sports i feel like a meta analysis just a short one in the beginning of like a, a cast or something would be easy to do and pay off in dividends for the spectators but especially when they're putting it on abc like you, right, yeah. they need to to bring in that casual viewer a little bit better than they do. That's they, the they have massive of. production bu- budgets and these amazing animators and casters, and like they could easily do it. They have all these analysts that they just don't. It just feels like they're not thinking. I don't know. That's just a qualm I have. But like, but yeah, this goats goats was every single cooldown, like I said, and everything was pushed on, and there were so many different strats. Like if they had a fair mercy, let's say you would play super close, shorten the engagement distance, and rush them down fast. If they had a Winston instead of a Reinhardt, you would play passively and try to kite the Winston in and then explode on him. Like, just different things. Every situation had a counter. And it was about who could... It was about which IGL could think faster on their feet. And it was it was really cool to watch. Yeah, I think Overwatch is one of the... Is, would be the biggest esport in the world if people could understand what's going on. That's... the And if it had a different major. company... <laughs> And League has that issue too, but League's slower, so the casters are able to bring people in a little bit more. You know, in Overwatch engagement, you've got nine things happening at once usually, and so League, at least, they can sort of focus in on the two people and be like, all right, this is what just happened, or here's a replay, we could do this. Overwatch, you just don't really have the time to to explain to that if for somebody who's not familiar with it, and that's their like number one hurdle they have to have to improve upon as the game goes forward as someone who casts tf2 weekly still you know i'm a former tf2 player as well tf2 especially highlander the 9v9 game mode is such a hard game to cast because there's something going on every second meanwhile casting movas like league of legends is just smooth sailing if you're play by play you get to do something once every five minutes at, at most if you're an analysis you can just get to kind of roll look what the observers are looking at and kind of just explain that to the audience but if you can't uh, make your game accessible to casual viewers, then it's just so much harder to retain that viewership and really help engagement up in your game. Yeah, the the casual viewer is the next frontier for esports. Like it's esports is growing rapidly, but everybody now is 
focused in on bringing in the casual viewer. That's the goal of the geolocalized Overwatch and Call of Duty. They want to be able to bring in people who are like, oh, this event's coming to like, I want to go watch this. And then they need to be able to understand it. And if they want to put it on ABC, they want to put it on linear television. Well, you're asking people flipping the channels to start watching it because everybody who knows about Overwatch is going to watch it on Twitch. That's already how they do it. It's free. Why would they watch it on something else? And they're trying to get the casual viewer. And that's the next big issue for esports. If esports is going to continue growing as rapidly as it is, it needs to start bringing in people who don't play the game. Look at traditional sports. How many people watch football who haven't played a down of football in 15 years? Like it's that's just how those games operate. It's you know, you're you don't have to play the game to be able to watch it. You have a ton of people in the stands who have never played the game, but it's understandable and they they love it and they know a lot about it without playing it. And that's just not something that exists in esports. So that's the next like huge hurdle for esports to cross. I'm curious on that front, actually, Mitch, do you play CSGO? Uh, I played a bit. Honestly, I am huge on strategy games. I'm a kind of Hearthstone, Teamfight Tactics, really big in uh, in like auto chess, digital card games, and then Rocket League. I play a lot of Rocket League. Mm-hmm. But do you think that if if like a CSGO major was on, could you sit down and watch a couple of rounds and be like mildly entertained and like generally oh, yeah. CS, CSGO is my favorite one to watch because I understand it. I'm lost when I watch Overwatch, even though I've played more Overwatch than I've played CS. I love to watch CS esports. Yep. That's the biggest draw. Their only hurdle for getting the casual viewer is the the violence consideration. That's true. It. Do you think that do you think that they they're doing because my opinion is that they're doing the worst job out of like the cultural marketing type aspect out of any of the games that right now? Like you see you see a giant tracer statue in what is it? A tracer tracer statue in New York, I think. Um, like yeah. just all these pop culture signs. Yeah. Valve doesn't care about CS, which is why Riot has this huge opportunity because Valve is always, you know, Dota 2 is, is Gabe's baby and Valve has 300 employees. They don't have... It's not, a, it's not a good scalable company. Like, like it's not good for the scalability of your platform. No. Riot has like 5,000 employees for one game. Valve has 300 for Steam, Dota, <laughs> and all their other games. Like it's... That, that company just has zero bandwidth to be able to like they probably have like three or four people on the cs team right now mm-hmm. honestly and, it, and that, that was in a company that wants to make it about for the top right now like it just wants to you know operate within its space and create unique experiences yeah they've just been so hands-off they've let esl and they've let iem or iem is esl but they've they've let these different third-party tournament organizers just control their entire scene and Riot has seen that and be like you know what we're going to do that. We're going to bring a comprehensive franchise structure and it's going to be it's not going to be terrorist versus counter terrorist. They're going to they're going to change that wording and that's I actually had that debate on the podcast with a uh, a CS:GO caster a little bit where the pros and cons of changing counter terrorist and terrorist to something else. Uh it's it's a it's a good debate. I think we both agreed it wasn't going to do ton, but Riot's going to bring this in and it's going to be more accessible to the on a violence consideration. It's still going to be a solid tactical shooter, but it's just enough of that fantasy element that allows brands to be more willing to engage with the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can definitely see a lot of games that would benefit from having that. A lot of Valve yeah. games, but yeah. And as someone who's been playing League of Legends and following League of Legends for years on end, 
even if you're not always 100% happy with how they handle their esports scene, you know, there's good metas, there's bad metas, on enough because of how updated the game, people are almost never disappointed with the content they put out. Uh, if you have a new champion release, people are going to want to see the art, they're going to want to hear the new champion theme song, they're going to want to see the champion be played by their favorite streamers, they're going to want to know everything about the lore of this champion, and Riot does such a good job of expanding their platform to all mediums, like I said earlier, so if they want to take on a game genre, like a, a tactical shooter... Not only are we going to get a good product because Riot know how to make a game good, we're going to get a cultural product where it's going to appeal to everyone. More money means more back into the game for players, for esports players, for viewers. And I'm really excited for what Riot can do when they're into all these new spaces at once. It's going to be absolutely insane. And you'll notice that with the three main esports that they're doing, the card game, the fighting game, and the tactical shooter, all three of those, the esports scene... Obviously, Counter-Strike has the best one, but Valve is so hands-off that there's a huge opportunity there. In the FGC, people aren't getting paid any money. You're, you have Zero, the best Super Smash Bros. player, who took like a net loss. He won 60 tournaments and lost money. Really? It's Wait, what did he get money from? Sponsorship. Oh he he makes it through... Like, I think it was through prize money alone, but the point is like the prize pool payouts for fighting games is just abysmally low for how actually popular they are in that whole community. And Riot's going to like franchise that and bring that up to a different level. And the last one, card games, Hearthstone Grandmasters has been like a total failure. Now they're yeah. getting protests at Blizzard, but they've never really found a good format for Hearthstone Esports and built up Hearthstone Stars, even though they were the digital card game of choice for the last five years. And that's a huge problem. So Riot sees all these things, and that's why they're attacking each of those different places, because they know they're all individually popular. They just have something that they feel like they can improve upon. A lot of Hearthstone players like Dog Dog have even jo already jumped ship to Teamfight Tactics. So imagine when they Most put out did, Legends yeah. of Runeterra, you know, a lot of the Hearthstone players are going to look over here and take a look, get in on it. It, the, the, I, I really like Riot's decision just with this whole thing because like you just said they're attacking every single problem in the industry it's a really romantic type notion with like they're really flexing on everybody right now this could turn like really big or really bad for Riot but I, I hope they go through with it and it gets like huge every game is popular and just knocks them out of the park you know just based on pure probability one of them will probably fail that's just yeah, but of course, but they're taking yeah, multiple yeah. shots at it. And I think I think there's I think it's pretty likely two of them succeed and become but I say succeed, I mean like become one of the dominant games in the genre, and one of them probably doesn't. If I had to guess which one's gonna struggle, it's gonna be the fighting game, actually. I would, my, I would say the exact same thing, yeah. Yeah, that's that's my best guess. It's so hard to balance, and there's so many like you're going against Street Fighter, who has eleven titles of doing this. It's like how you're gonna have to have to balance this really well. Speaking of, we're talking about game balance. Uh, I had one last topic I actually wanted to bring up with you too, real quick, because we're over an hour now. And I, I, if you're still listening to this, I really appreciate it. This is one of our longer podcasts. Normally try to cut it before an hour, but it's been a good conversation. Plus, we have two guests. So you get double the thoughts. So you get double the time. Uh, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to bring up is the esports burnout problem. And it's something that's really interesting in the esports world where You'd assume because it's not as physically based 
that players could play for a longer time. But in reality, we don't see League of Legends players lasting past the age of 26 ever. That's just not happening. And I actually wrote an article that got published this week for Adweek about how Nike is working with LPL players in China to help improve their physical fitness, which will help extend their careers. At least they hope so. And I think the short careers really comes down to game balance and meta changes because it forces players to always be on. When it's the season going and the meta is changing, it's hard. If you start taking breaks, it begins to feel like you're falling behind other people who aren't taking breaks. And when, you know, when a strategy you develop in spring can't be used in worlds, it means you really don't have a chance to catch your breath. So do you guys think that the constant updates and the the meta changes are leading to shorter careers for esports players? So I I have grinded a lot of different games to a, a high level of team experience. So I can definitely speak from personal experience that meta changes or just if your game lends itself to metas dictating every single per- part of the game, then you're going to have a rough time grinding that esport. What I mean by that is like, I'm going to use two different examples. So we have a bad example of like what a like bad burnout in Overwatch. And you have an example of less burnout in something like Counter-Strike. And the reason for this is in Counter-Strike, you have, there's no heroes. There's no changes in, in terms of what classes you're playing and what types of uh, thing you're playing. You're generally playing a hit scan with an AK or AK or an M4, and you're running into the site and taking different maps. The thing that's going to be changing for you the most is what maps are being played and if the maps get updated. In Overwatch, you have to worry about the meta. You have to worry about um, what heroes you can play in that meta. So like, if you're a hitscan player and it's Hanzo May meta, you're going to have to learn how to play a projectile hero in Hanzo. And that's going to take a ton of time out of your day. Not only that, but the meta comp is decided by what map you're on. So now you have to learn three three or four different comps for each individual map and how you're going to execute every single play on those maps. Like what positionings you want, what hero you want to start protecting more than, or where you like start want to dump your peel resources and stuff like that. It's just a whole mess because there's so many different things you have to relearn every single patch for Overwatch. And those patches are every two months. If you're not a pro player playing 10 hours a day, you're a kid going to school or trying to climb up you basically have no chance at grinding the game unless you're putting in 10 hours a day minimum and so you have pros doing that every single day in addition to having to stream and having to you know fear for their lives for being cut off their team for bad performances and stuff like that so it, it, it's really easy to see that like how burnout would attack them there but you Contrast that to Counter-Strike, right? And you have these players going into their 30s, their 40s. Uh, what is it? VP, I think? I, I might be butchering that. Uh, yeah, I think it's VP. They have players who are like, you know, 30 to 35, still actively playing. And while their mechanics have suffered a little bit, they don't. you don't see that burnout with them. You don't see their, like, their gameplay massively falling off. You just see it lagging a, a little bit behind. And that's because you don't have to be playing 20 to 30 hours a day, or, or sorry, uh, 10 to 20 hours a day. My bad. 30 hours a day, that's impressive. <laughs> 20, 10 to 20 hours a day to keep up your mechanics and to keep up your skill with the other players around you. I think part uh, of I that think- too is CS is, you, if you know the angles, you know the angles. It's it's You have that quick reaction of, oh, I see a player, I need to hit him. But once you know the angles, it's not as much about, 
okay, I've got four different commands at this point. Like you're more, it's, it's, you can, you can replace the quick trigger with pure knowledge and game sense built up over years and years of playing. Cause you're like, all right, this person appears here now and, and you pop them right there. And so that's, it's nice to be able, you see that in traditional athletics, of course, you're going to lose a step when you're 35, 36, but over all the years, they know how to slide their feet and get in front of their opponent. They know where to when to move, and when, and so they replace that quick twitch muscles with uh, with strategy and game knowledge. Yeah, because as you get older, you lose the ability to want or to be able to continuously learn new things. Those two month meta cycles, it's not going to work for somebody in their thirties compared to somebody in their you know their teens. Something their teens is going to pick up that meta every single two months and keep grinding it, but you're not going to want to do that 25, 30, etc. CSGO is such a unique uh, example here because, like, uh, Zeus just retired, Navi IGL. He was 32 when he retired. He won a major at 29. Get Right just retired. He's 29. So many players are getting to the age that, you know, real professional sports players can get to before they start losing a step. And even then, some players play more. And CSGO is unique in that a lot of the burnout from CSGO comes from it being the most... Uh, CSGO players are the most internationally traveled esports players, whereas there's tournaments all over the world all the time, whereas every other esport has localized leagues, at least in your region, in your continent. But CSGO players are constantly flying, you know, from North America to Europe to China... Turkey, everywhere. Uh, Team Liquid just had to drop out of IEM Beijing because they just went from like London. They're in Turkey, right? Or I forget where they are right now. They're, I think they're in Turkey, and then they would have had to go into Beijing. And that's what takes a lot of CS:GO players' fatigue is you know the traveling. A lot of them are able to keep up if they stay uh, sort of localized in their region. That's why European players have lasted longer because most tournaments are in Europe. So yeah, CSGO is just interesting because players last the longest and the burnout's caused by something completely different. We saw that with uh, Astralis as well. They were on that dominant yeah, run that and they got taken off the top spot because they just weren't traveling to all the little minor tournaments for a while. And it's just because they were probably burnt out. They were like, we can, we know we could play our best if we take our time. And it was probably a really smart decision. It, it was a it was a, a momentary knockdown, but then they came back and they were like, "Nope, we're still the best." So <laughs> I don't know if they are the best right now, but that was like over the summer. I remember they yeah, won another the major or minor, big minor. I can't remember. CS scene is so hard to to keep track of all the different tournaments. That's it is the, definitely oversaturated. That that's for sure. And that's that's yeah, because they don't have that big company behind them, like you know, making everything scheduled and stuff, but. It's nice when it's consistent, where it's like, all right, we're in the Overwatch offseason. Like, we're in League of Legends world. It's like, you just know when when to expect different things. That's a valuable thing for scheduling. It's in, it's in every single traditional sport, really. It's like, okay, you know when. I guess the individual sports are a little bit more minor major based, but all the team sports are, you have a, a dedicated season, and you know when to expect those different sports and that's i think that's going to be important for esports going forward for scheduling concerns and uh for travel for broadcast all these different things is to to have something that's very consistent it's not just okay we're in boston here with this tournament organizer now we're in poland and now we're in beijing it's a lot it's a lot of things to keep track of yeah, definitely. And even with the individual sports like tennis, a lot of the major tournaments, like said, the Grand Slams, those are all uh, always the same time of the year every year. 
minor tournaments, if players want to attend, they can. If they want to take it off, they can. It won't affect their individual rating too much, as long as you can make the major tournaments. And having a set schedule like that is it makes it a lot easier for you to maintain a practice regimen and a rest schedule so that you can go a long time. Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have been playing tennis. They're all close to 40 years old, and they're still winning every Grand Slam. So the schedule... Yeah, having a set schedule is definitely very helpful, and CSGO could definitely benefit. I want to loop insane. that back. I want to loop that back to the burnout point real quick. We're, we're talking about how oversaturated CSGO's tournaments are. That means these pros are playing in tournaments twenty four seven. Yet you're seeing later ages of burnout for their pro careers. It, it really goes to show you that like this this whole I, this prevalent idea of meta swapping constantly is really what's causing massive mental stress issues for a lot of these players. Yeah, that and like no mental frame, no like mental health frameworks incorporated into a lot of these player associations, and the and the physical fitness thing that really does matter. Like it's yeah. easier to play into your late thirties when you're Djokovic or Nadal because you're so in shape. Like you just have to be constantly on top of your body, and you have people working with you. And physical fitness matters. You know, it's going to wear down on you because it's going to start affecting your mental health. As you're grinding a game, you're grinding a game. It's going to feel overwhelming if you don't have outlets in your life to... That was the whole premise of the the Nike LPL thing. It's like, hey, there's no reason that these esports players can't be competing till late ages. They had Uzi on and he was like, yeah, my Uzi, doctor told me... Yeah, my doctor told me that my arms are... Uh, the same as a 40 to 50 year old yeah he said 40 to 50 year old that's that was shocking like uzi is not an old person he's i think i forgot how old he is i think in mid-20s right now he's not that 22. old 22 yeah middle yeah. 20s and he has the arms of a 40 50 year old that's just not not healthy yeah i gotta add some framework into that and may or may not be a correlation but i'm pretty sure csgo has the highest percentage of players being shredded so yeah uh, also, i want to say Good like point. to, to anyone yeah, and Freakazoid, Freakazoids. Freakazoid, Freakazoid yeah. yeah. League of Legends has uh, Tyler 1. He's shredded. He got banned, though. He got That's banned. They're shredded players. Yeah, yeah he can't be shredded. <laughs> but I want to say to anybody grinding, uh, to grinding games or just like, in general, just the sentiment, because it's something really personal for me, but like, you're going to play better. Like, physical fitness is a must. Even though you see some, you know, larger people on... Uh, in esports like if you want that longevity if you want to play good you really need that exercise and that good sleep because like you wouldn't like somebody playing against you on adderall right because that's a cns stimulant it's going to make your focus like super geared in it's going to make them play better that's what exercise to obviously to a much lesser degree but you need that exercise and that good like physical health routines to be able to have that focus to be able to you know, perform well consistently in all of these matches. If you have a bad lifestyle, you're never going to perform well or consistently well across a hundred different matches that you have to do. Like it's definitely something that's just as important to esports players as it is to normal sports players who use it in their sports. Yeah. You're way better off. If, if you have 10 hours to train, you are way better off doing eight hours in game and an hour and a half of exercising. Not, it's not even close. Like those last, those last couple hours, it's this was sort of my one of the premises of the article is when you're playing traditional sports, your body's like, hey, I'm exhausted. I'm done. We're not. It, it's very clear when you can't work out anymore and you're like, OK, this is not helping me. Like, I, I'm not going to push past exhaustion to keep lifting weights. That's a negative for me. But in esports, that point is not that clear. It's going to happen while you're playing a game. If you've played playing a marathon session, 
it's going to be a point where it's starting to actually be a negative for you because you're developing bad habits or you're you're tired or you're not focused. And at that point, you sh- the best thing for you to do is to stop playing. And that may seem counterintuitive, but it's an important thing for, for esports players to know as they grind games. Like you need, you could play eight really good hours a game and that actually might be better for you than playing 11 hours where the last four or five are you're falling out of your of your rhythm and you're you're developing bad habits. Yeah, there's definitely diminishing returns on practice like that. You know, playing that one extra solo queue game at the day really isn't going to do much for you if you just get that extra hour of sleep. Yeah, just it, the the biggest point is just like if you are a competitive gamer or somebody who wants to become a pro gamer, you need to stop looking at it as esports gets bigger. You need to stop looking at it as hey, I want to be a professional video game player. You will have to look at it as I am training to be an athlete. Your aim routines, your map practice, where you're throwing your smokes, your nades, or your map reviews, or your VOD reviews, or whatever, those are your actual routines. Like Those are your workout routines that you need to schedule and focus on just like you would if you were practicing soccer or basketball. Like, it needs yeah, to be the, the offline stuff, like, like practice and repetition, is so important as well. I think there's a lot of people who are just grinding games. Like, this is the best way to get better. It's like, you need to start your session with 30 minutes of warm-up. And with, uh, you know, trying to just perfecting the angles without other people shooting at you being like, all right, this is the exact point on this wall. I need to hit my nade, like pinpoint that know where you need to aim and then do it over and over and over again. And then you can do it in game because it's never going to be possible to develop those perfect strats when you're only doing them in the middle of a game. I 100% agree. Yeah. All right, we're at 118 minutes. This is not 118. We're, we were at one hour and 18 minutes. That's not how time works. But we're going to wrap this one up. This is the longest podcast we've done on the Esports Network podcast through 60 episodes. So pretty impressive. Good job to us. Wow, so so nice. Uh, Josh and Zach, both great guests. You're going to be hearing more from them in the future. We talked about two podcasts, actually, we might do. So... Definitely, this is not goodbye forever. It's goodbye for now. Josh, Zach, closing remarks. Do you have anything you want to say about game balance or to our listeners uh, when they he- next hear you? Um, about game balance, uh, I just like to highlight that Riot's putting everybody on blast, and so all these other games need to start picking. I up was going to say game. just that everyone's going to be ready because if if your other games don't get good real quick, Riot's going to take you over and take all your players. So. Everyone, if you're used to being abused by your game, if you're a poor Overwatch player who just wants to sit there and play Soldier 76, well, you get ready for Project A. Yeah, hopefully hopefully we're entering more of a golden era of potentially some really big updates for all the games. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to that, uh, honestly, this was a lot of fun. I had a really good time. And thank you for everybody who watched. Had a really good time. Yep. I, I had a great time. This is a really interesting topic. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. We're going to have that whole Riot special. There's a lot of... I am going to bring on... I'll even try and find um, another card game person to talk to me. And so we're going to probably do... That'll take the throne for the longest podcast we do. But expect Josh and Zach back for that one. And then back in November for PUBG. And maybe even in between if there's some other crazy news that comes out. I know Riot has some musical things planned uh, for October. We talked a little bit about KDA and Riot's marketing. So... That's uh, as I heard a little bit about that, but I think it's still under wraps. Uh, but there's something coming out there that's going to be pretty cool. So maybe we'll touch on that. Who knows? Uh, for now, thank you for listening. Got more podcasts coming up for you this week, talking to somebody from 
ESL's brand partnerships. So changing from this really nitty gritty esports meta to some of the mobile brand partnerships coming up. That'll be Friday's episode. This one going out today on Wednesday, recorded on Wednesday, going out on Wednesday. Thanks for listening, everybody. This was the Esports Network Podcast. I'm Mitch Reams.